The dwarf fell back, glaring darkly at the companions and crying out a warning to the other dwarves, who regarded them with even more distrust than before, if that were possible. What did you tell them? Sturm demanded. By the looks of them, they mean to kill us all. Never mind, said Raislin. We'll sort it out later. For the moment, they'll stay clear of us. Keep moving. The dwarves gave them a clear path, but they fell in behind them, forming a grim and silent escort. The companions arrived at the lift, and this presented their next problem. The table won't fit in the bucket, Caraman pointed out. Dump the draconian into the bottom, said Sturm. They are watching us, Raislin warned. He gestured to the crowd of dwarves growing larger by the moment. Be careful to keep the monster covered. He climbed into the lift. Sturm and Caraman tilted the table, and the draconian slid off, landing in a heap at the bottom of the bucket. Raislin hurriedly arranged the blanket over him. As many dwarves as could fit crowded into a second lift and rode up alongside them, keeping an eye on them. Sturm sank back against the side of the bucket, massaging his shoulders. Caraman flexed his hands and then arched his back, trying to ease a kink in his muscles. Raislin kept watch on the dwarves in the lift. The dwarves kept their eyes fixed on him. None of them noticed the faint quivering of the blanket covering the draconian until it was too late. Greg had come to his senses to find himself being hauled off to some unknown destination by his enemies. He had continued to feign unconsciousness, biding his time and cursing the Thawar who had managed to bungle everything. The draconian would have to reveal himself for what he was, and that was a pity, but it couldn't be helped. Greg had to return to his command and let Drayan know what had happened so they could alter their plans accordingly. Being dumped into the bottom of the bucket gave Greg his chance. Flinging off the blanket, he leapt to his feet. His first care was to fell the wizard. An elbow to the gut rendered him harmless. The wizard gasped in agony and crumpled. The two warriors were reaching for their swords. Greg whirled about, catching both of them with his lashing tail, knocking the knight backward and nearly flipping the other out of the lift. Greg would have liked to have settled the score and finished off these three humans, especially the knight, but he didn't have time. He jumped onto the edge of the bucket and perched there for a moment, getting his bearings. He looked down the lift shaft to see the base of the life tree far, far below. His idea had been to try to coast down on his wings, but the shaft was narrow, and he feared he might strike his wings on the stone sides and damage them. The dwarves in the second lift were raising a ruckus, pointing and shouting and bellowing in horror at the sight of the monster. Those dwarves waiting for the lift on the next level, hearing the commotion echoing up the shaft, saw the draconian poised on the edge of the bucket, wings spread, tail twitching. One quick-thinking dwarf seized the control lever, shoved it in place, halting the lift. Greg jumped out of the bucket when it was still swinging. He landed on his feet on the ground and came face to face with Hornfell and Tannis. Hornfell took one look at the monster, drew his sword, and ran to the attack. Tannis looked into the lift, saw Caraman helping Raceland to his feet, and Sturm trying to extricate himself. Seeing they were all right, Tannis went with Hornfell. The Dewar Thane, Nice, was slower off the mark, but soon caught up with the Hylar and the wild-eyed Klar. Shouting a piercing battle cry and swinging an enormous axe, he ran to join them. 
The soldiers were startled at the sight of the monster, but inspired by their thane's courageous example, they rallied and raced after them. Grag had no intention of fighting. He was outnumbered, and besides, this was neither the time nor the place. He cast a quick look around and saw what appeared to be a garden with a balcony overlooking the lake. Grag took to his heels. Using his wings to skim over the ground and any obstacles in his way, he easily outdistanced the pursuing dwarves. Arriving at the balcony, he leapt on it and teetered there a moment while he figured out where he was in relation to where he wanted to be. He glanced back at his pursuers, spread his wings, and jumped off. Gregg was at the top level of the life tree when he leaped, and his training in jumping from the back of a dragon proved invaluable. He could not fly, but as he had learned when jumping off the dragon, he could use his wings to slow his descent. He located the Thawar Wharf from the air, and though it was far off to his left, he could maneuver a little in the air in order to land in the water as near the Thawar realm as possible. Glancing up, Grag saw the dwarves peering over the edge of the balcony. More dwarves, hundreds of dwarves, were down below, staring up at him. So much for their plans for secrecy. Grag shrugged and gave his wings a twitch. As a commander, he was accustomed to sudden and unexpected shifts in battle. He couldn't waste time bemoaning mistakes made in the past. He had to think about the future, decide what to do and how to do it, and he had determined his next course of action by the time he was halfway down. He struck the water with a large splash. Draconians don't like water, but they can swim if they have to. Grag set out for the Thawar side of the lake, propelling his scaly body through the cold lake with powerful strokes of his strong legs and using his arms to dog paddle. Grag reached the wharf and pulled himself dripping out of the water. He tore off his robes, leaving them in a sodden heap on the dock. Then, loping and flying, he headed for the secret tunnels where his army waited for him. Is that one of the monsters of which you spoke? Hornfell leaned over the balcony, watching the draconian drift through the air as gently as a falling feather. These draconians are powerful beings, said Tanis, capable of using magic as well as steel. Their armies have conquered large sections of Ancelon. They have driven the Qualinesti from their lands and seized Pax Tharkis and our land of the Banasinia. Where did these fiends come from? Hornfell asked, horrified. I have never seen or heard of the like of them before. They are new to Ancelon, Tanis replied, shaking his head. We do not know what spawned this evil. All we know is that their numbers are great. They are intelligent and fierce warriors, as dangerous dead as they are alive. And you believe they have invaded Thorbarden? Perhaps there is only this one. They are like mice, said Sturm. If you see one... There are twenty more hiding in the walls. You're bleeding, said Tanis. Am I? Sturm lifted his hand to his face, bringing it back smeared with blood. The creature's tail hit me. He shook his head ruefully. I am sorry he got away, Tanis. He fooled us completely. How are Raislin and Caraman? Tanis asked, looking worriedly about. Raislin had the worst of it. He took an elbow to the gut. He'll have a bellyache for a while, but he'll be all right. The draconian nearly knocked Caraman out of the lift. He's more shaken than hurt, I think. Tanis turned to see the twins coming toward him. 
Raislin was slightly stooped, and his breathing was ragged. His expression was one of grim determination. Are you all right? Tanis asked in concern. Never mind me, Raislin returned impatiently. What are we going to do about Flint and the hammer? Tanis shook his head. He'd seen Raislin grow faint and nearly pass out over a stubbed toe. Yet after suffering a blow that would have sent stronger men to their beds, he could brush it off as though nothing had happened. Caraman came trailing up after his twin. He looked at Tanis and winced. Sorry we lost him, he said, chagrined. No harm done, and maybe some good. We accomplished what we set out to do. The dwarves have seen the truth for themselves. However, we now have new problems. As Tannis was telling his friends about Riverwind and Gilthanus, Hornfell was deep in discussion with the thanes of the Dewar and Klar. The high bluff was nowhere to be found. The Draconian had, unfortunately, leapt straight at him when making his escape, leading the terrified high bluff to think his last moments had come. He had turned and fled, running to the darkest, deepest pit he could find, and there he would remain until the supply of rats ran low and he was obliged to come out of hiding. The absence of the Agar Thane concerned no one. It is doubtful if they noticed. They did take note, grimly, of the absence of Rance, the Thane of the Dergar. No one had witnessed his departure. There was little doubt in Hornfell's mind that his worst fears were realized. His hopes for unification of the clans beneath the mountain were dashed. A Thewar and Dergar alliance would have been bad enough, but now there was evidence the renegade dwarves had secretly opened the gates of Thorbarden to forces of darkness. The very tragedy he had worked so hard to avoid, civil war, appeared inevitable. The Dewar Thane, who had been the most reluctant to think ill of his cousins, was now the most militant, ready to summon his army and battle them on the spot. The wild-eyed Klar would follow Hornfell's lead and do whatever he was commanded to do. Klar military forces were not entirely reliable, however. They were vicious fighters, but undisciplined and chaotic. The Thewar were not warriors, but the dark Dergar were. Their numbers were plentiful, and they were fierce, loyal, and consumed with hatred for their cousins, especially the Hylar. If they were joined by an army of monstrous beings, Hornfell foresaw ruin and disaster. After discussing the situation with the Thanes and making what plans they could, Hornfell walked over to speak to Tanis to offer his apologies for his earlier treatment. I would be glad to provide safe haven for the refugees in your care, half-elven, Hornfell said, adding grimly, But I fear there will be no safe haven for anyone beneath the mountain, humans or dwarves. Perhaps all is not as dire as you think, Thane, Tanis said. What if the Dergar have not allied with the Thewar? I saw Rance's face when he first set eyes on the Draconian, and he did not look smug. He looked as shocked and horrified as the rest of you. When I saw him, he wore a look of fury, said Raislin. He passed us on the way to the lift, and his expression was dark with rage. His brows were lowered, and his fists were clenched, and he was muttering to himself. My guess is that he had no knowledge that the Thewar had brought in these terrible new allies, and that he is not happy about it. Hornfell looked grateful. You give me hope, friends, and food for thought. 
Much now depends on the recovery of the hammer of Karas. If the hammer is returned to us, along with proof that Reorks has also returned, the Dergar would, I think, refuse to side with the Thewar. The Dergar are not evil and twisted as the Thewar have become. Their clan was hurt badly by the mine closings, and many have sunk to crime. But deep inside they are loyal to Thorbarden. They could be convinced to listen to reason, and they would be as glad as any to welcome Reorks back to his shrines. The re-emergence of the true hammer would be a most fortuitous event now. Not fortuitous, said Sturm. Divine intervention. The gods brought us here for this reason. Did they? Tanis found himself wondering. Or did we come here through stumblings and missteps, wrong turns and right choices, accidents and failures, and here and there a triumph? I wish I knew. We have to reach Flint and Armin, he said, for the very reasons you stated, Thane. Impossible, I fear, Hornfell returned gravely. My people reported to me that the bronze doors to the valley of the Thanes have closed, and no matter what we do, they will not reopen. 21. A Hero's Death Flint Makes Up His Mind Flint sat on the steps in the dark, rubbing his thighs and his poor old creaking knees. His legs had given out, refusing to climb one more stair. He'd climbed the last few, half-blinded by tears from the pain that burned through his muscles like liquid fire. He was hurting and in a bad mood, and he took it as a personal affront that Tasselhoff was so cheerful. The kender came clattering down the stairs. The staircase ends right up there. What are you doing sitting here? The kender asked, amazed. Hurry up, we're almost at the top. At about that time, the gong struck, and it did sound quite loud much louder than before. The musical tone resonated through the stairwell and seemed to jar right through Flint's head. I'm not budging, he grumbled. Armin can have the hammer. I'll not take one more step. It's only about twenty stairs and then you're there, Tasselhoff urged. He tried to slide his arms underneath Flint's shoulders with the intent of dragging him. If you scoot along on your bottom, I'll do no such thing. Flint cried, outraged. He batted the kender away. Let go of me. Well, then, if you won't go up, let's go back down, Tass said, exasperated. The map shows other ways to reach the top. I'm not going down either. I'm not moving. Secretly, Flint was afraid he couldn't move. He didn't have the strength, and that dull ache was back in his chest. Tass eyed him thoughtfully, then plunked himself down on the steps. I guess staying here forever won't be so bad, said Tass. I'll have a chance to tell you all my very best stories. Did you hear about the time I found a woolly mammoth? I was walking along the road one day, and I heard a ferocious bellowing coming out of the woods. I went to see what the bellowing was, and it turned out to be... I'm going, said Flint. Gritting his teeth, he put his hand on the kender's shoulder, and groaning, hauled himself upright. His head spun, and he tottered on his feet, and had to steady himself with a hand on the kender. Put your arm around my shoulder, Tass suggested. No, like this. There you go. You can lean on me. We'll go up together. One stair at a time. This was highly undignified. Flint would have refused, but he feared he could not make it without assistance, 
and he was driven not so much by the hammer, but by the terrifying prospect of hearing the woolly mammoth story for the umpteenth time. Assisted by the kender, Flint began to stagger up the stairs. I don't mind you leaning on me, Flint, said Tass after a moment. But could you not lean quite so heavily? I'm practically walking on my knees. I thought you said there were only twenty stairs, Flint growled, but he eased up on the kender. I've counted thirty, and I still don't see the end. What's a few stairs, more or less? Tass asked lightly. Then feeling Flint's arm tighten around his neck in a choking manner, Tass added hurriedly, I see light. Don't you see light, Flint? We're near the top. Flint raised his head, and he had to admit that the stairwell was much lighter than it had been before. They could almost dispense with the lantern. Flint was forced to practically crawl up the last few stairs, but he managed it. An arched wooden door banded with iron stood at the top of the stairs. Sunlight gleaming through the slats lit their way. Tass pushed on the door, but it wouldn't budge. He jiggled the handle, then shook his head. It's locked, he reported. Durat, that will teach me never to leave my pouches behind again. The kender slumped down. All these stairs for nothing. Flint couldn't believe it. His aching legs didn't want to believe it. He gave the door an irritated shove, and it swung open. Locked, Flint said, glaring in disgust at the kender. I tell you it was, Tass insisted. I may not know much about fighting, politics, the return of the gods, or all that other stuff, but I do know locks, and that lock was locked. No, it wasn't, said Flint. You don't know how to work a door handle, that's all. I do so, too, Tass said indignantly. I'm an expert on door handles, doorknobs, and door locks. That door was bolted shut, I tell you. No, it wasn't, Flint shouted angrily. Because if the door had been locked, that meant that someone or something had opened it when he pushed on it, and he didn't want to think about that. Flint walked out into the sunshine. Tasselhoff followed, giving the offending door an irritated kick in passing. They had reached the battlements at the top of the tomb. Across from them was a crenellated stone wall. A tower lined with rows of windows rose to Flint's left. A short, squat tower was to his right. Beyond the towers and the stone wall was azure blue sky. I don't want to hear any more about it. Great Reorks's beard, he gasped. Oh, Flint! Tasselhoff let out a soft breath. The sunlight gleamed off a cone-shaped roof made of faceted panels of ruby-colored transparent glass. The pain in Flint's legs and the burning in his chest were subsumed in wonder and in awe. The ruby chamber, said Flint. He pressed his nose to the glass, and so did the kender, both of them trying to see inside. Is that it? asked Tass softly. That's it, said Flint, and his voice was choked. A bronze hammer attached to what appeared to be a thin rope hung suspended from the apex of the cone. The hammer swung slowly from one side of the chamber to the other. Around the ceiling were twenty-four enormous gongs made of bronze. Each of the gongs was inscribed with a rune. Each rune represented the hours of a day from waking hour to first eating hour, first working hour to second eating hour, and around to the sleep hours. 
The hammer swung back and forth, shifting position with each swing, timed so that it struck a gong at the start of the hour, then continued on in a never-ending circle. Flint had never seen anything so wonderful. That's truly remarkable, said Tasselhoff, sighing. He drew his head back and rubbed his nose, which had been pressed flat against the glass. Did dwarfs set the hammer to swinging like that? No, said Flint, adding hoarsely. It's magic, powerful magic. Though the sun was uncomfortably hot on the back of his neck, he shivered at the thought. Magic? Tass was thrilled. That makes it even better. I didn't know dwarves could do magic like that. They can't, Flint said crossly. He waved his hand at the swinging hammer. No self-respecting dwarf would even dream up something like that, much less do it. The same magic that yanked this tomb out of the ground and set it floating in the sky has turned the hammer of Karas into a Palanthian cuckoo clock, and he sighed glumly and peered up again at the hammer. Whoever wants the hammer has to find out a way to get inside there, then stop it from swinging, and then haul it down from the ceiling. From where I stand, it can't be done. All this way for nothing. The moment he said it, he was suddenly, secretly, vastly relieved. The decision whether or not to switch hammers had been taken out of his hands. He could go back to Sturm, Raceland, and Tannis and tell them the hammer was out of reach. He'd tried. He'd done his best. It wasn't meant to be. Sturm would have to get along without his dragon lances. Tannis would have to find some other way to persuade the dwarves to let the refugees inside the mountain. He, Flint Fireforge, was never cut out to be a hero. At least, he thought with a certain amount of grim satisfaction, Armin Karas won't be able to get to the hammer either. Flint was about to start back down the stairs when he looked about and realized he was alone. He felt a twinge of panic. He'd forgotten the first rules of traveling with a kender. Rule number one, never allow the kender to grow bored. Rule number two, never let a bored kender out of your sight. Flint groaned again. This was all he needed. A kender loose in a magic-infested tomb. He let out a roar. Tasselhoff Burfoot! Oh, there you are. The kender popped out from around the corner of the small squat tower. Don't go running off like that. Flint scolded. We're going back down to find Armin. You're standing in the wrong place, Flint, Tass announced. What? Flint stared at him. You said that from where you stood you couldn't reach the hammer. And you're right. From where you are standing, you can't reach the hammer. You're standing in the wrong place. But if you walk around to the other side of this tower, there's a way. Here, look inside again. Tass pressed his nose to the glass and reluctantly, yet feeling a twinge of excitement, Flint did the same. See that ledge way over there, the one sticking out of the wall above the gongs? Flint squinted. He thought he could make out what Tass was talking about. A long stone ledge thrust out into the chamber. If it is a ledge, it's not much of one, he muttered. Tass pretended he hadn't heard. Flint was such a pessimist. I figured if there was a ledge, there had to be some way to reach the ledge, and I found it. Come with me. Tass dashed around the squat tower. Flint followed more slowly, still searching for a way off this tomb. He looked out over the crenellations, but all he could see down below were curls and whorls of red-tinged mist. 
Not there, Flint. Over here, Tass called. The kender stood in front of a double door made of wood banded with iron. They're locked, Tass said, and he fixed the doors with a stern eye. Flint walked up, pushed on one of the doors, and it swung silently open. How do you keep doing that? Tasselhoff wailed. Sunlight poured eagerly inside, as though it had been waiting all these centuries to illuminate the darkness. Flint took a few steps and came to a sudden halt. Tasselhoff, coming behind, stumbled right into him. What is it? the kender asked, trying to see around him in the narrow hall. A body, said Flint, shaken. He'd nearly trod on it. Whose? said Tass in a smothered whisper. Flint had trouble speaking for a moment. I think it's Karas. The body had been sealed in a windowless vestibule shut off by two sets of double doors and was well preserved. The body was intact, the skin like parchment or old leather, drawn tight over the bones. It was that of a dwarven male, unusually tall, with long flowing hair, but only a very short scruff of a beard. Flint remembered hearing that Karas had shaved his beard in grief over the Dwarf Gate Wars and had never allowed it to grow back. The corpse was clad in ornate ceremonial armor as befitted the warrior who had borne the king to his final rest. The harness that had held the hammer for which he was famous was empty. He had no weapons in his hands. There was no sign of a wound on his body, yet he appeared to have died in agony, for his hand clasped his throat— the mummified mouth gaped wide. Here's the killer, said Tess, squatting down by the body. He pointed to the remains of a scorpion. He was stunned to death. That's no way for a hero to die, Flint stated angrily. Karas should have died fighting ogres, giants, dragons, or something. Not felled by a bug, not felled by a weak heart. But if this is Karas and he's dead, said Tass, Who's that other Karas, the one who told Armin he'd show him how to find the hammer? That's what I'm wondering, said Flint grimly. At the end of the vestibule was another set of double doors. Beyond the two doors was the ruby chamber, and inside the chamber was the hammer of Karas. Flint knew those doors were locked, and he also knew the locked doors would open for him, as the other locked doors had opened. Having seen the ledge, he had figured out a way to obtain the hammer. He looked down at the corpse of Karas, the great hero, who had died an ignoble and meaningless death. May his soul be with Reox, Flint said softly, though I'm guessing the god took him to his rest a long, long time ago. Flint gazed down at the corpse and made a sudden resolve. By Reox, I won't go out like this, he vowed to himself. Hey! he said aloud. Where do you think you're going? Tasselhoff was standing impatiently in front of doors at the end of the vestibule, waiting for Flint to come open them. I'm going to help you get the hammer. No, you're not, said Flint gruffly. You're going to find Armin. I am? Tass was amazed, pleased, but amazed. Finding Armin is awfully important, Flint. No one ever lets me do anything awfully important. I'm going to this time. I don't have much choice. You're going to find Armin and warn him that the thing he thinks is Karas isn't Karas. And you're going to tell Armin you know where the hammer is. Then you're going to bring him back here. But if I do that, he'll find the hammer. 
Tass argued. I thought you wanted to be the one to find the hammer. I have found it, said Flint imperturbably. No more arguments. There isn't time. Off you go. Tass thought it over. Warning Armin is awfully important, but I guess I'll pass. I really don't like him all that much. I'd rather stay here with you. You're going, said Flint firmly, one way or another. Tash shook his head and took hold of the door handle and held on tight. After a brief tussle, Flint managed to pry the Kender's fingers loose. He got a good grip on Tass's shirt collar and dragged the wriggling, protesting Kender across the floor and tossed him bodily out the door. And, Flint added, I'll need this. He deftly twitched the hoopack out of the Kender's hand, then slammed the door in his face. Flint! Tass's voice sounded muffled and far away through the bronze doors. Open up! Let me in! Flint heard him rattling the door handle, kicking the door, and beating on it with his fists. Hefting the hoopack, Flint turned and walked off. Tass would get bored with the door soon enough, and for lack of anything better to do, he'd go in search of Armin. Flint did feel a twinge of guilt at sending the Kender off to encounter that ghost, ghoul, or whatever it was that was claiming it was Karas. He quickly banished the guilt by reminding himself that the Kender had a remarkable talent for survival. He just gets other people killed. If anything, Flint muttered, I should be worried for the ghost. The truth was that Flint could not risk having the Kender witness what he was about to do. Tasselhoff Burfoot had never, ever kept a secret. He would solemnly swear on his topknot that he would never, ever tell, and five minutes later he would be blabbing it to everyone and his dog, and this secret had to be kept. Lives depended on the keeping of it, countless thousands of lives. Flint struck the double doors with his hand, and they opened with a resounding boom, and he walked inside the ruby chamber. 22. Flint's Secret, The Hammer Tass Makes an Amazing Discovery Inside the ruby chamber, sunlight gleamed red through the ruby-colored glass ceiling, filling the room with a warm glow. Flint walked out onto the ledge and marveled that he was here. He was humble, overwhelmed, triumphant. He watched the hammer swing back and forth in a slow arc, as it had done for three hundred years. Had Karas suspended it from the ceiling? Flint craned his neck to see. The rope on which the hammer was suspended hung from a simple iron hook. Flint had the impression that perhaps Karas had suspended the hammer, but that other hands had added the magic. Other hands had fashioned the gongs that struck the hour and had crafted the beautiful ruby ceiling— the same hands had dragged the tomb out of the Valley of the Thanes and set it floating in the sky, hands that were somewhere around here still, perhaps waiting to close around Flint's throat. He watched the hammer count the minutes as they passed, as the hammer had counted all the minutes of Flint's life as they had passed, from birth to this moment, as it counted the beating of his weak old heart. Each dwarf dreams that he or she will be the one to find the fabled Hammer of Karas. They talk of it over their mugs of ale. They tell the story to their children, who make hammers out of wood and play at being the dwarven hero. Flint had dreamed of it, but he'd been pragmatic enough to know that his was nothing more than a dream. How could he, metalsmith, toymaker, and wanderer, alienated from his own kind, ever be the hero of his race? But he had, somehow— 
By some miracle, the gods had brought him here. They had brought him for a reason, and he was certain he knew what that reason was. The hammer swinging above him made a gentle whooshing sound as it sailed through the air. He could feel the breath of its passing on his face, and he fancied it was the breath of Reorks. Moving stiffly, grimacing at the pain, Flint knelt down awkwardly on the ledge. His old knees creaked in protest. He hoped he could get up again. Reorks, he said, gazing into the ruby glow. You're not one of the gods of light, like Paladine and Misako. You're a god who sees both the light and the darkness in a man's soul. You know why I'm here, I guess. You know what I mean to do. Paladine would frown at it if he were here. Miss Ockle would throw up her pretty hands in horror. I am being dishonest, I suppose, Flint added, stirring uncomfortably. And what I propose to do is not honorable, though Sturm did go along with it, and he's the most honorable person I know. You see, Reorks, Flint explained, I'm only borrowing the hammer. I'm not stealing it. I'll make sure the dwarves get it back. I just want to use it to forge the dragon lances. And once that's done and we win the battle against the Dark Queen, I'll return the hammer, switch the true one for the false. The dwarves will never know the difference. Because they think they have the real hammer, they'll choose a high king. Open the gates to Thorbarden to the world. Bring in the refugees, and all will be well. There's no harm to anyone, and much good. That's my plan, said Flint, struggling to stand again. He managed, but only by propping himself up with the Kender's hoopack. I guess if you don't like it, you'll knock me off this ledge or deliver some such punishment. Flint waited, but nothing happened. The double doors shut behind him, but so slowly and so softly that he never noticed. Taking silence for a sign that he could proceed with the god's sanction, if not his blessing, Flint walked out to the very end of the ledge. He stared down into the shaft below. All he could see was red light. He wondered how far the drop was, then, shrugging, put the thought out of his mind. He gazed up at the hammer and calculated the distance from the hammer to the ledge. He eyed the hoopack, then eyed the hammer again, and thought his plan just might work. Flint stretched out flat on his belly on the ledge, grasping the hoopack, he held out his arm as far as it would go and made a swipe at the rope with the forked end of the hoopack as the hammer whistled past. He missed, but he was close. He had to scoot out over the ledge just another couple of inches. He clutched the end of the stone ledge with his hand and waited for the hammer to pass him again. Flint swung his arm with all his might, and his momentum almost carried him off the ledge. For a heart-stopping moment he feared he was going to fall— but then the hoopack snagged the rope, and like an angler with a fish on the line, Flint gave the hoopack a sharp jerk. The leather sling dangling from the end of the hoopack tangled itself around the rope, and Flint, his heart beating fast and wild, slowly and carefully drew in the hoopack and the rope attached to the hammer. Dropping the hoopack, Flint grabbed the hammer and hauled it up onto the ledge. At that point he had to pause, for he couldn't quite catch his breath. He was light-headed and dizzy, and strange swirling lights were dancing in front of his eyes. The sensation passed quickly, however, and he was able to sit up and take the blessed hammer in his lap and gaze at it in reverence and awe. Thank you, Reorks, said Flint softly. I'll do good with it. I'll use the hammer to bring honor to your name. 
I swear it by your beard and mine. The hammer was a wonder and a marvel. He could not stop looking at it. The false hammer was like the true, but did not feel like it. He put his hand on the hammer of Karas, and he felt it quiver with life. He felt himself connected to an intelligence that was good, wise, and benevolent, grieving over the weaknesses of mankind, yet understanding of them and forgiving. Some dwarves swore Karas had carried the hammer for so long that it was imbued with his spirit, and Flint could almost believe it. He realized then that any dwarf who had ever touched the real hammer of Karas could never mistake the faults for the true. Fortunately, no dwarf now living had ever touched the real hammer. Not even Hornfell would know the difference. The counterfeit looked the same, and it weighed about the same, since Raceland had magicked it. Both hammers were lightweight, easy to carry. The runes were the same on both. The color was nearly the same. The true hammer had a golden sheen that the other did not. He'd just have to keep the real one concealed in his harness. As for other differences, the false hammer would probably not strike as hard or hit its mark as surely as this hammer would do. Flint longed to test it, for he had heard that the hammer of Karas fused with the dwarf who wielded it, reacting to mind more than touch. However, Flint would have to wait until he and his friends had put the dwarven kingdom far behind them before he could try it out. Remembering that Armin might show up at any moment, Flint took the false hammer from his harness, thinking as he did so how cheap and shoddy it looked in comparison to the true. He slid the hammer of Karas into the harness on his back, tied the false hammer onto the end of the rope, then, pulling back the rope as far as it would go, he let loose of the hammer and set it swinging again. The false hammer swung back and forth as its momentum carried it, but then slowly it came to a stop and hung motionless from the ceiling. Flint experienced a moment of panic. Now that it had quit swinging, the hammer might well be out of reach. He lay down and extended the hoopack. He couldn't touch it, and for a moment he despaired. Then he remembered that Armin's arms were far longer than his, and Flint breathed easier. This was actually good, for it provided him with an excuse for why he'd failed. Flint walked over to the double doors and opened one and peeped out into the vestibule. No sign of Armin, just the body of Karas. The empty eyes seemed to stare at him accusingly. Flint didn't like that, so he shut the door and went to sit down on the ledge. The hammer of Karas pressed against his spine, sending a glow of warmth through his body that eased his aches and pains. Flint waited. After Flint had so very rudely banished him from the ruby chamber, Tasselhoff wasted several moments trying every trick he knew to open the doors, with no result. He then spent a few moments lamenting the loss of his hoopack, the crankiness of dwarves, and the general unfairness of life. Then, seeing as how the doors were not going to open, Tass decided he'd do as Flint had told him and go off to find Armin. The Kender did not have far to look. He had only to turn around, in fact, and there was Armin emerging from a tower to the Kender's right. Armin! Tass greeted him with joy. Kender, said Armin. Tass sighed. Liking Armin was hard work. Where is Flint? Armin demanded. He's in there, said Tass, pointing at the doors. We've made the most wonderful discovery. The hammer of Karas is inside. And Flint is in there? Armin asked, alarmed. Yes, but get out of my way, 
Armin gave the kender a shove that sent him sprawling on the flagstones. He must not get the hammer. It is mine. Tass stood up grumpily, rubbing a bruised elbow. There's a body in there, too, he said. The body of Karas. He laid emphasis on that. Karas is dead. Quite dead. Been dead a long time, I should imagine. Armin either wasn't paying attention or he didn't catch the connection. Or maybe it didn't bother him that he'd been hobnobbing with a Karas who was lying in a mummified state in the vestibule. Armin walked up to the double doors and put his hand on the handle. They're locked, Tass started to tell him. Armin flung the doors open wide and walked in. How do they keep doing that? Tass demanded, frustrated. He made a spring at the door, just as Armin Karas shut it in his face. Tasselhoff gave a dismal wail and pulled on the handles and pushed on the doors. They wouldn't budge. He slumped down disconsolately on the door stoop and sulked. Dwarves opening doors left and right, and he, a kender, shut out. Tass vowed from then on that he would carry his lockpicks in his smalls if he had to. After a moment, he realized that even if he couldn't be present, he could at least see what was happening inside the chamber. He ran over to the roof and pressed his nose against the ruby glass. There was Armin, and there was Flint, standing off to one side, and there was the hammer hanging from the rope that wasn't swinging anymore. Armin had something in his hand. My hoopak! Tass cried indignantly. He beat on the glass. Hey, you put that down! I don't think he can hear you, said Karas. Kender are not subject to fear, so it couldn't have been fear that made Tasselhoff leap several feet into the air. It must have been because he felt like leaping. He gave a few more light-hearted leaps after that just to prove it. Tass turned to confront the white-haired, white-bearded, stoop-shouldered dwarf. The Kender raised a scolding finger. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings when I say this, but I don't believe you are, Karas. He's dead inside that vestibule. I saw his corpse. He was stung to death by a scorpion, and it's been my experience that a person can't be alive here and dead there at the same time. Perhaps I'm the ghost of Karas, suggested the dwarf. I thought you might be at first, Tass poked his finger into the dwarf's arm. But ghosts are insubstantial, and you're substantial. He was quite proud of those long words. They ranked right up there with ramification and speculation. That gave him an idea. His glasses. The ruby glasses had let him read writing he couldn't read and see through a wall that wasn't there. Perhaps they would reveal the truth about this mysterious dwarf. Hey, look behind you. What's that? Tass cried and pointed past the dwarf's left shoulder. The dwarf turned to look. Tass whipped out his spectacles and put them on his nose and stared through the ruby glass. He was so amazed by what he saw that he forgot to take them off again. He stood staring, his body going limp, his mind stumbling about in a foggy daze. You're... he began weakly. You're a... he swallowed hard, and the word came out. Dragon! The dragon was an enormous dragon, the biggest Tasselhoff had ever seen, bigger even than the horrible red dragon of Pax Tharkas. This dragon was also the most beautiful. His scales glittered gold in the sunlight. He held his head proudly. His body was powerful, yet his movements were made with studied grace. He didn't appear to be a ferocious dragon, the kind who considered Kender a toothsome midday snack although Tess had a feeling this dragon could look very fierce when he wanted to. Right now the dragon only looked troubled and disturbed.
Ah, said the dragon, his gaze fixed on the ruby spectacles perched on the kender's nose. I wondered where I'd put those. I found them, said Tass immediately. I think you must have dropped them. Are you going to kill me? Tass wasn't really afraid. He just needed to be informed. While he didn't want to be killed by a dragon, if he was going to, he didn't want to miss it. I should kill you, you know, the golden dragon said sternly. You've seen what you're not meant to see. There'll be hell to pay over this, I suppose. The dragon's expression hardened. Still, I don't much care. Queen Tachesis and her foul minions have returned to the world, haven't they? Does this mean you're not a foul minion? Tass asked. You could say that, said the dragon, with the hint of a smile in his wise, shining eyes. Then I will say that, Tass was relieved. Yes, the Dark Queen is back, and she's causing a great deal of trouble. She's driven the poor elves out of their beautiful homeland and killed a lot of them, and she and her dragons killed Goldmoon's family and all her people, even the little children. That was really sad. The Kender's eyes filled with tears. And there are these creatures called Draconians who look like dragons except they don't because they walk on two legs like people, but they have wings, tails, and scales like dragons, and they're really nasty. There are red dragons who set people on fire and black dragons who boil the flesh off your bones, and I don't know how many other kinds. But no dragons like myself, said the dragon. No gold dragons or silver. Tasselhoff had a squirmy feeling then. He had seen gold and silver dragons somewhere. He couldn't quite place it. It had something to do with a tapestry and fizzban. The memory almost came back, but then it was gone, disappeared in a puffball. Sorry, but I've never seen anyone like you before, Tass brightened. I saw Woolly Mammoth once, though. Would you like to hear about it? Perhaps some other time, said the dragon politely. He looked even more troubled and very grim. I'm Tasselhoff Burfoot, by the way, said Tass. I'm called Evenstar, said the dragon. What are you doing here? Tass asked curiously. I am the guardian of the Hammer of Karas. I have kept it safe until the gods returned and a dwarven hero of honor and righteousness came to claim it. Now my duty is done. My punishment is ended. They cannot keep me here. You talk like this was a prison, said Tass. It was, Evenstar replied gravely. But, Tasselhoff spread his arms, looked up at the wide blue sky. You could fly anywhere. I was bound to my promise, a promise I've kept for three hundred years. Now I am free to go. You could fight alongside us, Tass suggested eagerly. Why, I'll bet you could tie one of those red dragons in knots and make him swallow his tail. Even Star smiled. I wish I could help you, little friend. I would like nothing better. I cannot, however. We dragons took a vow, and although I opposed it and advised against it, I will not break the vow. Though I cannot fight at your side, I will do what I can to aid you. These draconian creatures you describe trouble me greatly. What are you going to do? Make them swallow their tails? That would spoil my surprise. Farewell, Tasselhoff Burfoot, said Evenstar. I would ask you to keep my secret, for the world must not yet know that my kind exists. But I understand that secrets can be a great burden on one with such a light and merry heart. Therefore it is a burden I will not inflict. 
Tass didn't understand. He barely heard. He was wrestling with a choke in his throat that wouldn't go away. The dragon was so wonderful and beautiful, and he looked so unhappy that Tasselhoff took off the ruby spectacles and held them out in his small hand. I guess these belong to you. The dragon reached down an enormous claw, a claw that could have engulfed the kender, and gently snagged the spectacles with a tip. Oh, before I forget, Tass said, sadly watching the spectacles disappear in the dragon's grasp. How do we get off this tomb? Not that I'm not enjoying my stay here, he added quickly, thinking the dragon might be offended. But I left Tannis and Caraman and the others on their own, and they tend to get in trouble when I'm not there to watch over them. Ah, yes, said Evenstar gravely. I understand. The dragon drew a large rune on the flagstones. He breathed on the rune, and it began to glow with a shimmering golden light. When you are ready to depart, step onto this rune, and it will take you to the Temple of the Stars, where the dwarven thanes are gathered to await the hammer's return. Thank you, Evenstar, said Tass. Will I see you again? Who knows? The gods hold the fates of all in their hands. Evenstar's body began to shimmer with the same golden light. The light grew dim, then faint, then vanished altogether in a radiant haze. Tass had to blink several times and snort a great deal to clear some snuffles from his eyes and nose. He was still not seeing all that well when he felt a tap on his shoulder. A white-bearded, stoop-shouldered dwarf stood in front of him. The dwarf held a pair of ruby-colored spectacles in his hand. Here, said the dwarf, you dropped these, and mind that you don't lose them. Spectacles like this don't grow on trees, you know. Tass started to say he would treasure them forever, but he didn't, because the dwarf wasn't there to say it to. The dwarf wasn't anywhere. Oh, well, Tass said, cheering up. I have the spectacles back. I'll be very careful of them, very careful. He tucked the spectacles into his pocket, made sure they were safe and secure, then went back to the red glass roof. Flint and Armin were gone, and so was the hammer. Tass was wondering what could have happened to them, and was seriously considering trying to break the glass so he could crawl inside and find out when the double doors flew open. Armin walked into the sunlight. I have the hammer of Karas, he proclaimed in triumph. He was so pleased with himself, he even smiled at Tass. Look, Kender, I have the sacred hammer. I'm glad for you, said Tass politely, and he was in a way. Armin did look very proud and happy. If he was happy for Armin, he was sad for Flint, who came trailing out the door after Armin. Flint looked subdued, but not as crushed and disappointed as Tass had feared. I'm sorry, Flint, said Tass, resting a consoling hand on the dwarf's shoulder, a hand the dwarf promptly removed. I think you should have been the one to take the hammer. Oh, by the way, can I have my hoop pack back? Flint handed it over. The gods made their choice, he said. Tass didn't quite see how the gods had anything to do with finding the hammer, but he didn't like to argue with Flint in his unhappy state. Tass changed the subject. I met a golden woolly mammoth, Flint. He showed me the way out, he said. Flint glared at him. No more woolly mammoths. Not now. Not ever. What? Tasselhoff was confused. I didn't say woolly mammoth. There's no such thing as a golden woolly mammoth. I met a golden woolly mammoth. Tasselhoff clapped his hands over his mouth. 
Why did I say that? I didn't see a woolly mammoth. I saw a golden woolly mammoth. Tass slapped himself on the head, hoping to jolt his brain. It was big. It was gold. It had wings and a tail, and it was a woolly mammoth. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't manage to say the word woolly mammoth. Tass heaved a deep sigh. He'd been looking forward to telling Flint, Tannis, and all the rest how he, Tasselhoff Burfoot, had spoken to a golden woolly mammoth, and now he couldn't. His brain knew what he wanted to say. It was his tongue that kept confusing things. Flint had walked off in disgust. Armin Karas was marching about the battlements, holding the hammer and shouting to the world that he, Armin Karas, had discovered it. Tass trailed after Flint. I did find the way out, he said. I met a, er, someone who showed me. All we have to do is step on that golden rune over there, and it will take us to some place or other. I forget, he pointed to the brightly glowing rune, glistening on the flagstones. Oh, yes, the Temple of the Stars. Your father's there, Tass said to Armin, waiting the return of the hammer. Flint looked astonished and skeptical. Armin was tempted but suspicious. Where did this rune come from? he demanded. I told you, I met someone, the guardian of the tomb. He was the... Tass tried his very best to say it. The word dragon was in his throat, but he knew perfectly well what it would come out as, woolly mammoth, and so he swallowed it. I met Karas. He showed me the rune. Armin's face darkened, and so did Flint's. Karas is dead, said Armin. I paid homage to his spirit. I will return when I may, and see to it that he is entombed with honor. I do not know who or what that apparition was. It was his restless roving spirit, said Tass, now enjoying himself, doomed to wander the tomb of his king in unhappy torment, weeping, wailing, and wringing his hands, unable to depart until a true hero of the dwarves returns to free him. That hero is you, Tass said to Armin. The spirit of Karas is now free. He left me with a blessing and floated up into the air like a soap bubble. Poof, he was gone. Flint knew the kender was lying through his teeth. He didn't dare say a word, however, because Armin had listened to the outlandish tale with reverent respect. We will honor the last wishes of the spirit of Karas. Removing his helm, Armin walked over and stood with bowed head on the golden rune. Where did this rune really come from? Flint asked in a harsh whisper, adding indignantly, No dwarf ever went poof. I'd tell you the truth, Flint, said Tass, sighing. But I can't. My tongue won't let me. Flint glared at him. And you expect me to stand on a strange rune and let it magic me to Reork's nose where? The Temple of the Stars, where they're awaiting the return of the hammer. Make haste, called Armin impatiently. This is my moment of triumph. I have a feeling I'm going to regret this, Flint muttered into his beard, but he stomped off and went to stand beside Armin on the golden rune. Tasselhoff joined them. He was the keeper of a marvelous secret, one of the biggest secrets of the past couple of centuries, a secret that would astound and amaze everyone, and he couldn't tell a soul. Life was very unfair. The rune began to glow. Tass's hand went to his pocket and closed over the ruby spectacles, and felt something tickle his fingers. He fished it out. 
The rune began to shine bright gold, and the red mist closed in around them, and he couldn't see the tomb anymore. All he could see was flint, armin, and a white chicken feather. Then Tass understood. Hope. That was the secret, and it was one he could share. Even if he couldn't say a word to anyone about their being golden, woolly mammoths. When word spread through the dwarven realms that the doors leading to the Valley of the Thanes had closed and would not open, the dwarves of Thorbarden came at last to believe that some momentous event was at hand. The Eighth Road was reopened, and dwarves traveled by wagon and on foot to take up their vigil outside the Guardian Hall. The day was drawing to close when suddenly the great doors swung open. A solitary dwarf appeared an elderly dwarf with long white hair and a long white beard. He was not Armin Karas, nor was he the Nadar dwarf, and the assembled dwarves regarded him warily. The elderly dwarf stood before them. He raised his hands, calling for silence, and silence fell. The hammer of Karas has been found, the dwarf announced. It is being carried to the Temple of the Stars to dedicate it to Reorks, who has returned and now walks among you. The dwarves stared at him in suspicion and amazement. Some shook their heads. The elderly dwarf raised his voice, his tone stern. The hammer hung suspended from a thin piece of rope. It swung back and forth, counting out the minutes of your lives. The rope has been cut, the hammer freed. It is you, the dwarven clans of Thorbarden, who hang suspended from that same fragile lifeline, swinging between darkness and light. Reorks grant that you choose well. The strange dwarf turned and walked back inside the great bronze doors. Some of the bolder dwarfs followed him into the Valley of the Thanes, hoping to be able to speak to him, ask questions, demand answers. But upon entering the doors, the dwarves were momentarily dazzled by the sunlight shining into the valley, and they lost sight of the dwarf in the glare. When they could see again, the strange dwarf was nowhere to be found. It was then they saw the miracle. The tomb of Duncan no longer floated among the clouds. The tomb stood on the site where it had been built three hundred years before. The sunshine gleamed on white towers and glowed on a turret crafted of ruby glass. The lake was gone as though it had never been. The dwarves knew then the identity of the strange dwarf who had appeared to them, and they took off their helms and sank to their knees and praised Reorks, asking his forgiveness and his blessing. The statue of Grolin stood guard before the tomb, where, inside, they would find the final resting place of King Duncan and the remains of the hero Karas. A stone helm was on the statue's stone head, and an expression of infinite peace was on the stone face. 23. The Temple of the Stars the hammer returns. The dead walk. Tanis and his companions were with Riverwind and Gilthanus in the dwarven house of healing when Hornfell brought them word that the hammer had been found. Riverwind and Gilthanus were now both conscious and feeling somewhat better. Raceland had made a study of the healing arts in his youth, and not entirely trusting the dwarven physicians, he examined their injuries and found that none were serious. He advised them both to remain in bed and to refrain from drinking any of the potions the dwarven healers wanted to feed them. Drink only this water, Raceland cautioned them. Caraman fetched it from the well himself. 
and I can attest to its purity. Hornfell was impatient to leave for the Temple of the Stars, but he was gracious enough, and perhaps feeling guilty enough, to take time to ask after the health of the two captives and to offer his apologies for the rough way in which they had been treated. He posted members of his own personal guard beside their beds with orders to watch over the human and the elf with as much care as they would guard him. Only then did Tannis feel comfortable leaving his friends. Do you think that Flint has really found the Hammer of Karas? Yilthanas asked. I don't know what to think, Tannis returned. I don't know what to hope, that he has found the hammer or that he hasn't. It seems to me that finding the hammer will cause more problems than it solves. You walk in darkness, half-elven, said Riverwind quietly. Look to the light. I tried it, Tannis said quietly. It hurt my eyes. He left his friends, not without some misgivings, but he couldn't be in two places at once, and he and the others needed to be at the Temple of the Stars to witness and perhaps defend Flint's return. If he had found the Hammer of Karas, there were many who would try to take it from him. The Temple of the Stars was the most holy site in all of Thorbarden, which for the dwarves meant all the world. For the dwarves believed that in this temple was a shaft that led to the city where dwelt Reorks. The shaft was a natural phenomenon discovered during the construction of Thorbarden. None could plumb its depths or determine how far below the earth it went. Rocks tossed into it never hit bottom. Thinking, perhaps, that they just couldn't hear them, the dwarves had thrown an anvil into the pit, knowing that when it hit, they would hear a resounding crash. The dwarves listened. They listened for hours. They listened for days. Weeks went by, followed by months, and they still heard no sound. It was then the dwarven priests decreed that the shaft was a holy site, for it obviously connected this world to the realm of Reorks. It was also said that if you had nerve enough to look straight down into the pit, you would see the lights of Reorks's magnificent city sparkling like stars far below. The dwarves built a grand temple around the pit and named it Temple of the Stars. A platform extended out over the pit, and here the dwarves placed an altar dedicated to Reorks. They built a waist-high wall around the pit, though no dwarf would have ever dreamed of committing the sacrilege of either climbing or jumping into it. Dwarven priests conducted their most sacred rituals here, including marriage and naming ceremonies. Here the high kings were crowned. The dwarves held the temple in reverence and awe, going there to offer humble prayers to Reorks, to ask for his blessing and praise him. But as time passed and the might of Thorbarden grew, the dwarves thought better of themselves. Who were they, powerful and mighty, to beg to a god? They came to demand rather than ask, often writing down their demands on stones and tossing these into the pit. Some dwarven priests found this practice reprehensible and preached against it. The dwarves refused to listen and thus Reorks was pelted with demands that he give his people everything, from wealth to eternal youth to an unfailing supply of dwarf spirits. Apparently Reorks grew weary of this, for when the cataclysm struck, the ceiling of the temple caved in, blocking all the entrances. The dwarves attempted to remove the rubble, but every time they shifted a boulder or a beam, another crashed down, and eventually they gave up. It was Duncan, High King, who reopened the temple. He hoped to find Reorks by doing so, 
and he devised a plan to use the great Urken worms to chew through the rubble. His detractors said the worms would not stop there, but would chew through the temple walls as well, and the worms did in some places before the worm wranglers could stop them. These holes were easily repaired, however, and dwarves could once more enter the temple. King Duncan did not find Reorks there as he had hoped. Legend has it that the king flattened himself on his belly and peered into the pit, hoping to see the famed stars. He saw nothing but darkness. Still, he held that the temple was a sacred place, and the memory of the god was here, even if the god himself was gone. He banned the tossing of stones into the pit. Once again, important ceremonies and functions were held in the Temple of the Stars, and thus it was deemed to be the most suitable place for the thanes to witness the recovery of the Hammer of Karas. Hornfell prayed it might happen soon, for already the mountain kingdom was in turmoil. Word of the monstrous winged lizard man had spread rapidly throughout all the realms, creating a sensation. A laconic race, dwarves are not given to rumor-mongering. They do not embellish stories or exaggerate the facts, leaving that to humans. A dwarf caught dressing up a tale is not to be trusted. One lone draconian leaping off the lift in a human community would have turned into six hundred fire-breathing dragons invading the kingdom. The dwarves, who had seen the draconian jump off the life tree and fly over the lake, told the astonishing tale to their neighbors and relatives, and they told it accurately. None of the dwarves knew what to make of this creature, except that it was undoubtedly evil, and each dwarf had his or her own idea on what it was and how it came to be in Thorbarden. All agreed on one thing. No monster like this had been seen in Thorbarden as long as the gate was sealed. This was what came of opening their doors to the world beyond. Tanis and the other talls were viewed with even more suspicion than before. Hundreds of dwarves were already clogging the ninth road in an effort to reach the temple. There had already been several fistfights, and Hornfell feared that worse would happen. Riots would break out, and dwarves would be hurt if they were allowed to crowd into the temple and its environs. Hornfell decided to close the temple to the public. Only the thanes and their guards would be present to witness the hammer's return. Having seen the draconian for himself, Hornfell came to believe that Tanis had been telling the truth, that Thawar had betrayed Thorbarden to the forces of the Dark Queen. Hornfell feared that Railgar, knowing his perfidy had been discovered, would choose this time to attack. The Thawar army, being little more than an armed mob, did not overly concern Hornfell, whose troops were highly trained and well-disciplined. But the half-elf had warned Hornfell that an army of these dragon men might well be prepared to invade. If that happened, they would likely attack the temple first in an effort to seize the hammer. Hornfell wanted armed troops surrounding the temple, not an unruly crowd. Hornfell was also worried about the Dergar. If Rance sided with Railgar, and they were backed up by the forces of darkness, Hornfell despaired that even the Hammer of Karas could save his people. The Thane of the Hylar was a dwarf of courage and nobility, whose worth was proven in these dark hours. Hornfell readily admitted that he had been taken in by Railgar's lies. He had misjudged Tanis and the others. I have lived too long sealed up inside the mountain, Hornfell said sadly. I need to see the sunshine once again, breathe fresh air. What you need, Sturm advised, is to look for Reorks. You won't find him at the bottom of a pit. Hornfell thought this over. 
Like most dwarves, he had sworn many an oath by Reorks. The Thane had never before prayed to Reorks, however, and he wasn't certain what to say. He had been told of the words of the strange dwarf who had appeared in the entrance to the valley, how the fate of Thorbarden hung by a slender rope. In the end, Hornfell's prayer was simple and heartfelt. Reorks, grant me the wisdom and the strength to do what is right. He held his troops in readiness, as did the Thane of the Dewar, Nice, whose thinking had agreed with Hornfell on all points except Reorks's return. If the god had come back, he would have made himself known to the Dewar first, since they had been the ones to build and tend his shrines. As of yet, Nice had seen no sign of him. Tufa, the Thane of the Klar, had seen the Draconian and been eager to kill it. He envisioned these monsters creeping into Thorbarden along dark and secret paths, and he sent his people, who knew their way around the darkness and the labyrinthine tunnels, to investigate. What they found turned out to be most interesting. Tufa took his discovery to Hornfell, who told Nice that he was wrong. Reorks was back. The Thanes assembled in the Temple of the Stars, each bringing with him heavily armed guards, Hornfell had also invited the Talls to join them in the temple. A large square building, the temple had four entrances, one at each of the four compass points. Wide halls ran straight from the four doors to intersect in the inner chamber. This was the altar room, and it was circular in shape, for it had been built around the pit, a round pool of starlit darkness beneath a domed ceiling. A hole in the ceiling was placed directly above the pit, matching it in shape and size, and symbolizing the idea that the realm of the god had no beginning and no end. The altar of Reorks, which had been considered ancient in King Duncan's time, had never been removed. Made of red granite carved in the shape of an anvil, the altar stood at the end of the platform that extended out into the pit. The dwarven thanes eyed the altar uncomfortably, wondering if they should make some offering to acknowledge the god's return. None knew what they were supposed to do or say, so rather than risk offending the god, who was known to be touchy, they stood before it, doffed their helms, and then looked uncomfortable. The rest of the large altar room was empty. There were no thrones, chairs, or benches. Those who entered the altar room were in the presence of the god and were meant to stand in respect. Hornfell, Nice, Tufa, and Klar were the four thanes in attendance. They came together, talking in low and worried voices. Tanis and his friends stood apart, saying little. The dwarves had placed torches in sconces around the walls, but the flames did little to light the vast room. Darkness seemed to flow out of the pit and drown them, for though the air was still and calm, the torches constantly flickered and went out. Even the light cast by the staff of Magius seemed dimmer than usual, shedding its light only on Raislin, illuminating nothing else. Two of the thanes are missing, said Sturm, those of the Thewar and Dergar. The fact that Railgar is absent is no surprise, said Tanis, but it is beginning to look as though the Dergar have joined forces with their dark cousins. The Agar thane was also missing, but no one noticed. The tension mounted as everyone waited for the hammer, nerves stretched taut, conversation dwindled, no one had any idea what was going to happen, but most believed it was going to be bad. The strain proved too much for the leader of the Klar, who suddenly threw back his head and let out a hideous shriek.
a feral, heart-stopping howl that echoed throughout the chamber and caused the dwarven guards to draw their weapons. Sturm, Caraman, and Tannis clapped their hands to their swords. The Clar merely snarled and waved his hand, indicating that he'd meant nothing by it. He was simply easing the tension. I hope he doesn't do that again, said Caraman, thrusting his sword back into its sheath. I wonder what's taking so long, said Sturm. Perhaps they were waylaid. We don't even know for certain that the news about the hammer is true, Raislin observed. For all we know, this may be a trap. We might have been sent here to keep us away from the hammer. I don't like this any better than the rest of you, said Tannis. I'm open to suggestions. I say that Tannis and I go to the Valley of the Thanes and look for Flint, said Sturm. No, you and I should go, Sturm, said Raislin. Sturm hesitated a moment, then said, Yes, Raislin and I should go. Tannis was so amazed at this sudden strange alliance that he nearly forgot what he was about to say. He had started to suggest that perhaps they should all go to the valley, when suddenly there was Tasselhoff right in front of him. Tannis had never been so glad to see anyone. Risking the loss of his personal possessions, he gave Tass a hug. The others greeted the Kender warmly, then immediately bombarded him with questions. How did you get here? Where's Flint? Does he have the Hammer of Karas? A magical rune made by a golden woolly mammoth. Tass answered them all in a jumble. Flint's here, and no, he doesn't have the hammer. Armin has it. Tass pointed to Flint, standing on the platform before the altar of Reorks. Armin Karas stood beside him, holding the bronze hammer in triumph over his head. I, Armin Karas, have found the hammer of Karas, he thundered. I return it to my people. Tannis sighed. He was glad the hammer had been recovered, but he was concerned for his old friend. I hope Flint's not taking this too hard. I was worried about that, too, said Tass. But Flint seems really chipper. You'd almost think he found the hammer. Sturm and Raislin exchanged glances. The gods be praised, Sturm began, but his prayer was cut short. Hot flame erupted from the pit and exploded in their midst. The dazzling light blinded them. The concussive blast jarred the senses and knocked many to the floor. Half-blind and dazed, Tannis staggered to his feet, fumbling for his sword and trying to see what had happened. He had a vague impression of something monstrous crawling out of the pit. When his dazzled vision cleared, Tannis saw it was a man, fearsome in blue armor and horned helm, pulling himself with ease over the edge of the platform. Lord Verminard, very much alive. 24. Seeing is Believing True metal and false. Verminard was dead, Sturm shouted hoarsely. I stabbed him through the heart. Something's not right, Raislin gasped. Yeah, the bastard can't be killed, Caraman said. Not that, Raislin whispered, felled by a fit of coughing. He tried desperately to speak. His lips were flecked with blood. The light blinded. A magic spell. He doubled over, struggling to breathe. The coughing spasms tore at his frail body, and he could say no more. Where's Flint? Tannis asked worriedly. Can you see him? The altar is in the way, said Sturm, craning his neck. The last I saw, he was standing beside Armin. 